You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us uh, in this time. And Lord, we do pray that you would speak clearly uh, to us through your word and that we might be able to discern uh, your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right, so this kind of piggybacks on the class that I did about uh, God's sovereignty uh, and, uh, and human freedom. Uh, so if you have a chance, go back and listen to that and then listen to this. But I'll recap some of what I said there because it has a lot to do with discerning God's will uh, for our lives. It's a, uh, it's a hot topic uh, amongst people and people that come and visit with me. This is often their big question. Uh, I want to be in God's will. I want to do God's will. How do I know uh, God's will? And so today we're going to talk a little bit about that and actually how in the 20th, how I've been challenged. Uh, this has been a good uh, series for me because I've had a lot of my assumptions challenged uh, because incidentally... Um, uh, when you read the Bible, that happens, and, uh, and how much I was relying on people telling me what they thought the Bible said, and, and I've all, one of the mistakes I found, and it really jumped out, uh, I'm spending a lot of time in First and Second Timothy and Titus these days, and there's this wonderful verse that Paul writes to Timothy, and uh, he says, uh, let people be able to see your progress. Uh, well, what does that mean? Uh, that means let people see when you're wrong. Because the moment that you have a preacher or a Bible teacher or a Christian thinking that they've arrived at the answer, they're doomed. They're absolutely doomed. doesn't mean that God changes his mind about what his word says, uh, but what it does mean is that uh, we do get things uh, wrong sometimes, and we need to continue to uh, wrestle with them. And one of the things that I think I've gotten wrong is I've bought into what has been uh, the traditional view of how we can discern uh, God's will. And this is normally articulated in this way, that uh, the Holy Spirit uses uh, the Bible, uh, the inner witness, you know, your, 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 your conscience speaking, uh, your personal desires, your circumstances, uh, mature counsel and wisdom from others, uh, common sense, and even uh, special guidance, like God going out of his way to speak to you in maybe a dream or a vision. And uh, in fact, that's kind of what I thought, uh, how God uh, guides his people and how we can discern his will. And then I started reading the Bible and realized uh, that's not totally true. Uh, that's not totally true. And so I hope that today we can lay some biblical groundwork so that we can continue to think this issue out uh, for ourselves. So when I talked about God's sovereignty, uh, one is that, uh, that we know that God is guiding, right? God is a guiding God. He doesn't sort of set, you know, wind the world up and then sit back and let things go the way uh, that they are. Uh, he actually is engaged uh, in all kinds of the details, uh, in every detail uh, of uh, the earth. And so that's why in Psalm 104, we find that God is the creator of uh, all the world. He made it. He rules it. We talked about God being our king. This is Psalm 104. He makes springs, pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, 
The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man. Episcopalians like that one. Oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. And Jesus himself expresses this all-embracing care of God for his creation in a striking way. When he says in Matthew's gospel, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So God rules. He sustains. He replenishes the world down to the most intimate detail. And this is the God who guides his people. Uh, God is our shepherd. God is the great planner. And God is ultimately our destination. Uh, It's hard to do justice to the majestic plan of God in a short period of time. But the best we can do is look at some key passages which outline what God's plan is. And in particular, the destination to which he is leading us. And so in the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we find this. Praise be to the God of our Father and praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ." And so here's the passage which speaks about God's plan in grand terms, and he gives us insight into our place in God's plan. Paul thanks God for our election, our adoption, our redemption, our understanding, and Paul praises God because all this is God's work, and God has accomplished all this in his love and grace through Jesus. Uh, But we should note particularly the purpose for which it's all done, and it comes out in several of the verses. In verse 4, We are chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight. In verse 5, we are predestined to be His sons and daughters. In verse 10, God's ultimate purpose is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Here is the goal or destination of our lives. It is to be under Christ. Full stop. That's where we're all headed if we're Christians. So, How can we uh, discern uh, God's voice if that is the ultimate destination? How does God guide us? Now, up uh, to this point, I I tend to use guide in different ways. On the one hand, we see that God guides His people behind the scenes. Uh, God works in all things to move His people along the path He has planned for them. He turns our hearts this way. He pushes us in that direction. He arranges circumstances so that this may happen to us and so on. We see that especially in the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. This behind-the-scenes guidance is only visible to us, though, after the event, 
as we look back on what God has done in our lives. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. C.S. Lewis was big on that. After C.S. Lewis was converted, he looked back on his life and he said, I felt the hounds of heaven nipping at my heels. But that was in, that was in hindsight, after God had intervened. He gives us, uh, excuse me, uh, so we know that God is moving and working in all things for our good, but the day-to-day details are not revealed to us in advance. I wish they were. We do know the destination, and we do know that He will get us there, but God guides and shepherds us on our journey in ways that we can only guess at. I know this is really heartwarming and assuring. However, God does not only guide us sovereignly behind the scenes, He also actually calls for our conscious cooperation. He gives us certain instructions and directions and calls on us to follow. With conscious cooperation guidance, we do know what God wants us to do in advance. We do know, we do know that God wants us to do in advance. God says to us, go this way, and it's our responsibility to either follow or disobey. And so we need to bear in mind this distinction between the behind-the-scenes guidance and the conscious cooperation guidance. How then does God guide us? Well, given the intense interest around the subject, the surprising thing is that the Bible says very little about how God guides His people, especially in the area of conscious cooperation. There have been countless books written about guidance, outlining ways to determine God's will for our lives, yet in the life Yet in the Bible, the subject hardly ever arises. Furthermore, when, God, when guidance does come up in the Bible, the answers are very different to popular Christian piety. So here are four propositions about how God guides, I think, in the Bible. One, God in His sovereignty uses everything to guide us behind the scenes. Two, in many and varied ways, God can guide us with our conscious cooperation. Three, God does promise to guide us by His Spirit and Scripture. And four, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us other than His Spirit and Scripture. God in His sovereignty uses everything to guide us behind the scenes. Well, I've already talked about how God has done that, especially in the area of, uh, we see that in the story of the Israelites and C.S. Lewis and even in our own lives. But again, that's hindsight looking back but also through our conscious cooperation. Uh, And of course, that is uh, from the beginning in the Bible, God talks to us about giving us instructions, directions, wisdom, knowledge. God speaks to man in the garden, telling him what he can and cannot do, and even spelling out the consequences of doing the wrong thing. This is safe ground. We all agree that God speaks to us, that he gives guidance by talking to us. The real issue is this. How does God talk to us? Should I expect a still small voice, an inner prompting, a dream, writing on the wall? Hebrews 1.1 is a key text in helping us. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God can use anything to speak to His people and offer them guidance. He's spoken at many times and in various ways. The Bible records an immense variety of ways that God has spoken to His people. For example, direct speech to Moses when he's at Mount Horeb, the pillar of fire and smoke for the Israelites, and the many Old Testament prophets like Jonah and Nathan, the writing that appeared on King Belshazzar, another good Bible name for a dog, 
uh, on Belshazzar's wall and Daniel. Uh, not to mention angels, dreams, visions, and even casting lots. Right? When Judas was to be replaced, did they have a discernment committee? And they said, who feels called by the Lord? No, what they do? They rolled the dice. Right? They rolled the dice. Which to us seems rather disturbing. But they trusted that God could work even in that way. And we're going to get back to calling. If I don't bring up calling, make me bring it up later on. The list could go on and on, and God can speak to his people any way he chooses and call on them to go his way. However, we have to make some crucial, crucial distinctions. To set out how God can guide us, for, he is, for he, how he has guided people in the past, does not tell us how God does guide today or how he will guide. This is worth repeating. To set out how God can guide does not tell us how God will guide, will guide in our daily lives. I've never been to Egypt. Uh, I don't have a staff, let let alone one that turns into a snake. My situation and Moses' situation are very different. Even if I met a man with a snake stick and a hand with optional leprosy, I wouldn't expect him to lead me out of slavery in Egypt. God did guide his people in that way, and I have no doubt that God could could guide his people again in that fashion if he should so choose. Yet I can't draw the conclusion that God will guide me in the same way today. If we look at the various ways that God has guided his people in the past, we, do, we don't find many promises that he will guide in the same way in the future. That's why it's so varied in the Bible. All of the above illustrations occur in narrative sections of the Bible. They describe how God guided, spoke in a particular time and situation. They say nothing of how God promises to guide his people in other times and situations such as ours. Modern Bible readers often make the mistake of assuming that because God has acted in a certain way in the past, we should expect or even demand that he act in the same way today. People choose stories like Elijah's still small voice or Gideon's fleece and expect that God will guide them in the same way today. This is a grave misunderstanding. It's not, only, it's not only quite selective in the stories that it chooses from the Bible. You won't find many proponents of wall writing in modern, modern guidance books. It also ignores the uniqueness of biblical narratives and their place in God's overall scheme. Worst of all, this way of reading the Bible takes no account of the difference that Jesus makes. So let's clarify our question. What we really want to ask is not how can God guide us or how has God guided in the past, but how does God promise to guide us now in the area of conscious cooperation? Having clarified the question, the Bible's answer is actually not that hard to see. God promises to guide us by His Spirit and Scripture. The Old Testament looked forward to a time when God would send His Spirit on all people. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's Ezekiel 36. In the New Testament, this hope is fulfilled. Jesus, the risen Christ, pours out the Spirit on his people. And the New Testament continually assumes that all Christians receive God's Spirit as a guarantee of their relationship with God. Genuine Christians, writes John in his first letter, need not be worried by divisive heretics who deny Christ because the anointing of God's Spirit will teach us the truth. However, 
Before we say too much about the Spirit's role in our Christian faith, we should realize that it won't help us much in answering our question. For who is the Holy Spirit but God? To say that God guides us by a Spirit is to say that God guides us by God. It doesn't answer the real question. How then does, does God the Spirit promise to guide us? The answer is simple. By the sword of the Spirit, the Scriptures, God speaks to us by His Word. He tells, directs, encourages, advises, commands, informs, reveals, and exhorts us to live His way. The Spirit takes this Word and applies it to our hearts. He awakens a response in us and leads us to put it into practice. Now, this might sound very dull and pedestrian, but God speaks to us in words. And these words have been written down, and we are supposed to read them and find out what God wants us to do. This is not very mystical or magical or spectacular, and it therefore lacks some fascination for unspiritual minds. But to say that God speaks in His Word is actually very active. And even in our own lives, uh, we're known by how we speak. So when I'm speaking to you, you're able to hear what I'm saying so that you can understand who I am, and you're actually seeing my gestures and my facial expressions. And even though we can't see God's facial expressions or gestures, uh, we can understand God uh, and what He's saying to us and who He is by what He's saying to us. And indeed, when I say, I love you, is that just words? No. Uh, there's something behind those words. I mean, it's amazing to me when you look at some of the great things that have happened in the world, and by great, I mean big, uh, how words can start a world war. And words can end a world war. Or even today, uh, most of the news is about what people are saying and what people are not saying. So actually, words are not just words, which is why we should all stop telling our children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, why do names hurt? Words have power. And in the same way, God's word has power. When we look at the, what the Bible says about itself, we find a consistent pattern of promises that God will continue to guide His people by His Word. And so the Scriptures actually are very clear about what it looks like for us to live in the world. If we're all moving to be under the headship of Jesus Christ, to be one under Him, that actually God's foremost call on our lives is to submit to Him as Lord and Savior. All right, so if you want to be in God's will, hand your life over to Him. That's, that's the first and foremost thing, uh, because we, that is incredibly clear, uh, crystal clear uh, in, uh, in the Scriptures. But then we look at, in light of that, what about our individual daily decisions? What color is the equator? What color is the equator? That's a stupid question. That's a stupid question. What do you mean what color? The equator doesn't have a color. Uh, but what I have found um, is that oftentimes we're actually asking uh, the wrong question. Uh, the question is stupid, what color is the equator? Uh, but it would have been very frustrating for me if I had been honest and actually wanting to know what color the equator is. What, I what if I really thought the equator was colored? If my friends continued to stonewall me, you, uh, I would have to turn to other sources of information to find the answer. 
The point is this. If we ask the wrong questions, we either get the wrong answer or no answer at all. And if we get no answer, we're tempted to turn elsewhere to find an answer. Many of our problems with guidance stem from precisely this. We ask the wrong questions and then wonder why we cannot find answers. We flounder around in great anxiety trying to discover the color of the equator. How do we know if we're asking wrong or irrelevant questions? From what we know about the sufficiency of God's revealed world, word, it would seem simple. We should ask the questions that God thinks are important. And these are the questions he has answered in the Bible. God doesn't have two plans, one general and one special. He has only one plan, and it's both general and special. He wants all people and each of us individually to be under Jesus. He has a plan for each Christian to make us like Jesus by guiding us along a path of good works until we reach perfection on that last day. That is God's priority for all of us. And this is the top of his agenda. Unfortunately, this isn't the top of most of our agendas. We're terribly concerned about whether we're going to marry Drusilla or Mary Lou. We think that success of our whole life, our whole married life, will depend on the right choice, and we agonize over it. However, God's priority is for us to be godly, whether we're single, married, whether we marry Drusilla or Mary Lou. After all, that is the journey we are on to become like Christ. Baby, where what does Daddy call you? Yeah, that's her pet name, Drusilla. Um, I'm a terrible father. Uh, uh, what's more, God has given all of us we need, uh, given us all we need to know to complete this journey. If something is important and we need to know it in order to fulfill God's plan, plan then it is there for us in the Bible. So 1 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Or 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has not left us in the dark or even in the twilight. He's not left out anything that is important for us to know on our journey with Him. So when we come to apply this to nitty-gritty of daily life, God has also provided something to help us, the biblical idea of wisdom. And so obviously... Wisdom is available to everyone. And so if you're spending time in God's Word, you're going to be getting win wisdom. You're going to be imbibing it so that when you do get into a situation where you think, I don't know exactly what to do here, but God has actually spoken and prioritized for you what is important in life and what it is that you need to be discerning. And so a brief, very briefly, I kind of, have, well, I'll, I'll narrow down decisions in everyday life to three categories. So we're approaching a decision, and it's either one, a matter of righteousness, two, a matter of good judgment, or three, a matter of trivia. Matters of righteousness. Whenever God's word tells us explicitly and precisely what to do and what not to do, the decision is simple. We should joyfully and gladly obey. So in decisions of righteousness, those are those situations where God's word is abundantly clear. And so for, uh, and sometimes some clarification is needed. Sometimes it's not just the act itself which is right or wrong. Sometimes the context of a situation will determine whether it's right or wrong. So killing, for example, may sometimes be right. 
So in Exodus 21, and even in our own circumstances, uh, when it comes to uh, the ideas of just war, but also killing is certainly wrong, Exodus 20. And God tells us how to distinguish between the two. Similarly, although all foods are clean, Paul warns the Romans that it's not always right to exercise our freedom to eat them. In the same way, our motivation for doing something can be righteous or unrighteous, even though the action itself is neither here nor there. Decisions about where to live, for example, are not in themselves questions of obedience. However, our motivations for moving to one place rather than another might be quite wrong. You might move for status, pride, or greed, and we would need to repent of this. Having done so, the suburb or town itself is a matter of indifference, and we would use other means to make the decision. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Sometimes then, there will be some aspects of our decisions that are matters of righteousness, and some others that are not. We need to give first priority to matters of righteousness, for they are the things that matter most to God. And sometimes people will try to take matters of righteousness and say, well, this is just a good judgment. Uh, I've had this happen a number of times, not a lot of times, but a number of times, where someone has come into me and said, uh, God is telling me I need to leave my husband or wife. And, and I'm not talking about a, an abuse situation. I'm just talking about I'm li- I'd like to trade in the old model for a newer model kind of talk. And I can say with some definitiveness... Uh, God is not calling you to do that. Right? That's not a matter of good judgment. That's a matter of righteousness, and God is not calling you to do that. Uh, but there are matters in which good judgment is to be exercised. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. We talked about this last week, where Paul said, Look, I'm not going to force celibacy on you and holding that up as the ultimate end-all, be-all of, of the Christian life that actually it's okay for you to be married and it's okay for you to be single. One is not better uh, than uh, the other. And so having listened to God and to to His Word uh, and viewing the world from His perspective, uh, good decision-making ought to also involve observation, experience, and good judgment to work out what is the best course of action in a particular case. This is the part of wisdom, as I mentioned before. Some of the situations or courses of action just work out better in this world because of the way that God has created it. Proverbs is full of these sorts of observations about life. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf where there is hatred. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. These are astute assessments of what life is like in God's world. But in one sense, they don't stem from a special divine revelation. Anyone can see that if you spend your time building your house before you first provided a source of income or food, you're going to starve. And then your beautiful house will not be much use to you. Anyone who observed life and thought about it could come to the same conclusions that much of what Proverbs says. Rod Rosenblatt, once here at the Advent, described the book of Reading through the book of Proverbs is like driving cross-country with your (laughs) mother-in-law. In other words, even where God doesn't give us direct guidance, He still graciously provides for us. He puts in us good and habitable world, which is not chaotic or actually unpredictable. He gives us the ability to make enough sense of the world to live in it and to rule it, however imperfectly, by His Word.
Now, matters of trivia. Wisdom also tells us that some decisions are of such little consequence that they're not worth wasting time and energy on. They're not matters of righteousness, nor would one course or other be particularly better or worse. An example might be choosing between two similarly priced, similar quality items that we're looking to purchase. In these instances, we should just make a decision and do it without much thought. And yet, how many times do we agonize over it? In fact, the wise person will see that it can, be a mis- it can be a mistake to invest too much importance in decisions that are actually trivial. By giving more energy and time to a decision that is warranted, we can end up overlooking things that are important, either as matters of righteousness or good judgment. We can find ourselves straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel. Now, uh, moving on. There is, there is a propensity uh, in the Christian uh, world to think that God is actually, uh, he sets up our life in such a way that we think that if we make the wrong decision, then we get God's second best Some Christians are taught that if God wants them to follow a particular course of action, to marry Mary Lou or serve on the mission field, and they choose not to do it, then they're committed for the rest of their lives to God's second best. God had something better for them, but they missed out on it and so are required to settle for plan B, so to speak. Many Christians live today in resentment, disappointment, and guilt, believing that they have irrevocably missed out on God's perfect plan for them. This view is a travesty of the biblical understanding of God, and it contains lots of errors. One, it's a misunderstanding of sin and consequences. The second best theory seems to assume that there are only relatively few decisions that we might place outside God's will. However, our wrong decisions are not limited to a few areas. We choose to rebel against God in hundreds and thousands of ways throughout our lives. Does each of these mistakes take us further and further away from the perfect plan? By the end of our lives, are we going to end up somewhere around God's 10,000th best? Well, closely related to that error is the very selective nature of the decisions that can consign us to the second best. Things like marriage, career, answering the call to the mission field, and so on, seem to be viewed as very important matters of guidance, while the thousands of other decisions we make each week are somehow unimportant. The perception is false. The things we think are very important are quite often unimportant to God and vice versa. Most importantly, the second best heresy denies the power of God. It says that if you make the wrong decision, God thinks, oh no, what do I do now? I didn't expect Andrew to go with Drusilla. And he's unable to achieve his goals without my indispensable cooperation and is dependent on me making the right choices. When that happens... God becomes the subject, becomes subject to the whims and follies of human sinfulness. Needless to say, this view is at, is at complete odds with the way God is revealed in the scriptures. God overrules the minds and hearts of people to achieve his plans. He uses even our sinful decisions to bring about his purposes. He can take an action that was wrong and intended to do harm and achieve his own good purpose through it. Joseph being tossed in the well and sold into slavery by his brothers is a great example of that, and I would encourage you to look uh, back in uh, Genesis 
uh, chapter 50 and read that story. So let's stop and take a minute and let's unpack some of this stuff about what it means, matters of righteousness, matters of good judgment, matters of triviality. And what I mean by sometimes we take issues that we think are really big deals and uh, actually are not big deals, or the way that we approach them is actually backwards. So let's look at an example I brought up earlier, where, where we live. How do we normally, and you don't have to admit it yourself, but how do we, how do we, what are the priorities? How do we determine where we live? What are some of the issues that we think about? Schools, right? Schools. Safety. Work, right? Location. Anything else? Price, absolutely. Size. You know, I look for, you know, I want a backyard. I want, you know, I kind of want this, uh, you know, all that stuff. It's, you know, when it's moving ready, that's kind of nice, you know, um, those types of things. But those are the considerations. But how would God consider where we live? You know, and we live in a place that's, that's pretty mobile. And, and I, but I'm running into this more and more. Uh, people who uh, have moved into a town uh, because of a job, and we get calls like this all the time, we can't find a church where we are. Now, what we know what the Bible says, actually what the Bible says about, just, what does the Bible say about work? What is work for? The primary means for work, to eat, to provide food for your table. Well, that doesn't sound very glamorous, does it? Uh, but uh, so work, yeah, it ought to be a consideration uh, of where we live. Um, all those things that we said ought to be uh, considerations of, of where we live, absolutely. Uh, but one of the things that's most often looked about where we live is church. Where are you going to go to church? Because the Bible is actually very clear uh, about the importance of gathering together and the importance of being at a church that is a gospel-preaching church uh, and is under the lordship of, uh, of Jesus. And so, but how many of us actually ever stop and think, am I moving to a place where, unless you're there to plant a church, are we moving to a place where actually there's a good church? And rather than calling the Advent and saying, uh, you know, there's not a good church where I am, uh, what I would love and what I say back to them, in fact, I'm in conversation with someone right now, there's a city out west where I actually think the Advent needs to go and plant a church because there's not a church there. And, and that is a really, really big deal. And the number of times where people will go away to college or things like that and they say, I just can't find the Advent anywhere. Well, that's because it's here in Birmingham, right? <laughs> and actually how it mortifies people for me to say, okay, if you're discerning where, okay, so you've decided to move there and normally say, I can't find an Episcopal church that I like. Well, already you've gotten way off the map when it comes to the Bible, how you determine where you go to church, right? I mean, where in the Bible does it say, you should see what the sign says out front? Or you should, be, you should be loyal to a particular brand name of church? It doesn't say that anywhere. It actually lists, this is what the church should be like that you should go to. Right? So you can look through the pastoral epistles, and you can see all the criteria of what the church is actually supposed to look like. And, and that is where you should go. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to miss certain things. Uh, but when we go on vacation, Lauren and I, or when we go to visit another town, I never go to the Episcopal Church unless I'm in Charlottesville and then I go, to see, I go for Paul Walker uh, or, if I'm in New or if I'm in Baton Rouge, I'll go to Drew Rollins Church. Uh, and so I'd much rather have good gospel solid preaching. I miss the liturgy 
And, and, I, and you know, people who say to me things like, well, Andrew, um, the preaching is terrible and the pastor's a heretic, but at least the liturgy's good. You know, it's at least the liturgy. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, that's not because uh, if that, the, you, I can tell you that church right now is not being shaped by the liturgy, at least the substance of it. It might be shaped by the form of it, uh, but it's not translating into the preaching. It's not translating into the life uh, of the congregation. And so actually the way that we look at things like where we live, um, what we do, uh, where we live, where we go to church, we've got a worldly backwards way of looking at it or even work, even work. How do we discern what we ought to do with our lives? I hear lots of people say, God has called me to the ministry. God has called me to be a doctor. God has called me to be a lawyer. I think it's amazing that the Holy Spirit only calls people to upper middle class and middle class professions. It's remarkable to me. It's absurd, isn't it? Actually, in 1 Timothy, Paul says right out of the gate, if someone desires to be an overseer, an elder in the church, they desire a good thing. What does that mean? It means it's actually okay to say, you know what? I really want to be a preacher. It's okay to say, I really want to be a lawyer. I really want to be a doctor. I really want to be an accountant. Uh, and so we end up spiritualizing something that actually is not necessarily uh, there uh, in, uh, in the Bible. And I've actually had to change the way that I even talk about my call into ministry. Because when we would gather together to talk to these, uh, these guys about whether or not they were called into the ministry for discernment, how do you discern that? Because it's completely, uh, it's, it's subjective. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a guy walking up to a girl and saying, God's called me to date you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? Uh, but actually, uh, what you see is that uh, what God wants me to do is to have a platform for ministry regardless of whatever it is that I do. And whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. That's, that's what I'm called to do. And if you're miserable, quit your job. I mean, I think it's very funny, and I'm not picking on lawyers here, but I'm picking on lawyers. How many lawyer-turned-preachers I've met, and I've never met a preacher-turned-lawyer. <laughs> I just, uh, my cousin, when I took the LSATs, told me, Andrew, law is a very expensive hobby. And what he meant by that is that you actually really have, it's, you have to love it. You have to love it, and that's, and that's true of, of, of anything. Now, that doesn't mean that we just kind of loaf around all day. You do need to work. I mean, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, uh, which is a favorite Bible verse among some of my family members, you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, God is so crystal clear on certain things that I think that it's up to us to actually reorient ourselves and look differently about how we discern life. That one, it's not choose your own adventure, where if you marry Drusilla you know, turn to page 85, and if you marry Mary Lou, turn to page 125, and you go on Mary Lou, and then it says, the bear ate you, uh, and, the, and the, the story is over. That's not how God works uh, at all. He's sovereign uh, in all things. And so in our world, and I talked a little bit about this last week, how people discern who it is that they should marry uh, is is completely backwards. It's completely backwards. I mean, you should definitely look at issues like uh, compatibility uh, and, um, 
uh, but uh, we often uh, follow too much after our hearts and we don't listen enough uh, to our heads. It's like the one guy that I was talking to and this girl was interested in him. I told you all this last week, but it's worth repeating. He was interest, she was interested in him and, and he said, well, I just, I don't want to go out with her. And I said, why not? And he said, well, she's not my type. And I said, any woman interested in you is your type. Like, that's your type. <laughs> you could be just as happy with Drusilla as, as Mary Lou. You can be just as miserable with Drusilla as, as Mary Lou. Uh, all, those, all those types of things. And so it's a really important issue of how we discern God's will in our lives. But God actually doesn't promise to... Um, uh, to, he promises to speak to us through his word. And so first and foremost, if you're wondering what God's will is for your life, I think the first question to ask is, uh, am I subject to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I in a relationship with him? Have I handed my life over to him? Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have areas of your life that you haven't totally given over to him. Absolutely, that's the struggle of the Christian life. And in fact, that's part of discerning God's will, that struggle that we have where we know this part of my life I've not handed over to Jesus, and I need to. Uh, and going from there, uh, the other stuff is discerning whether or not this is going to require some wisdom and, and some really godly judgment uh, and, uh, and a lot of prayer, uh, or this is actually something that's completely trivial, and I'm coming at it from the completely wrong side. Questions, comments, concerns? The parable of the persistent widow yes. is a problem for me because it seems to imply that if you just pester God long enough, he'll give you what you want. Yeah. What's wrong with that assessment? Yeah, so this brings in the issue of prayer, which actually I'm going to dedicate uh, a class to later on in the fall. Why, if God's already figured it all out, why pray? What's the point? Well, it's because God commands us. Like, that's pretty clear, clear, that God commands us to pray and to be persistent in our prayer because we don't know the means by which God is going to do what he's going to do. Not just that, but why was the widow persistent? Uh, the widow was persistent uh, because she understood that it was in the power of the judge to do what she was asking. So actually, it was not, I mean, it was about her persistence, but it actually had more to do with her trust in the judge. And so it was actually had more to do with the judge than it did the persistent widow, if that makes sense. And so if in our prayer lives, uh, yeah, we're absolutely praying to God that he would do certain things. And oftentimes, God answers that prayer. And as I mentioned in the class a couple weeks ago, there are some things that God actually is going to say no to. There are plenty of persistent prayers that we've had, and God has said no or not yet. Uh, and, and it may not be that we can make sense of that until we get to the other side and look back and see that God actually was working out all things for the good for those who love him and call, are called according to his purposes. So we're called to be persistent. Uh, we're called to our knees. I mean, an example of this would be Ezekiel 37 with the valley of the dry bones. If you remember, God tells Ezekiel to preach. So he starts preaching. And all the sinews and the marrow, must have been some sight, great, thing to, great story to tell your kids before they go to bed. And they're all put together. Uh, but the problem is what? They're still dead. They've heard the preaching, but they're really walking dead. And then God says what? 
pray. And what preaching was not able to do on its own, prayer accomplished. And so, so often in life, we forget that prayer is absolutely essential and oftentimes the vehicle by which God begins to work out His will uh, in our lives, which is why we're told, you have not because you ask not. Okay, so I have yes. a quick question, um, kind of towards what you were saying at the end about Jesus. So does God's will function outside of letting Jesus in your heart? Could you speak about that? Yes. Yes, of course it does. So, I mean, there's common grace. So that's why Jesus says, look, the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on, the, uh, on those who need it and those, those who don't. So I guess part of God's will should be that we are saved, right? And so, yeah, so it then, is. It's the yes, absolutely. So then, I, I guess I have a hard time with you know the idea that there is a certain sect of people that are, that aren't saved, right. and so therefore they're going to hell. And yeah. so, I kind of think of God as saying, "I'm going to save. I'm not going to persecute them right. too." And um, but it, but I don't know that that's always the message yeah. I get. So, yeah. that, so it's an antinomy um, that the scripture holds out of two ideas that are held in tension to one another. One, God's sovereignty, but also the very clear human responsibility to respond to God. And um, I've heard people say things like, God is too much of a gentleman to push himself on you or to force himself on you to do something that you don't want to do. I look at my life and I say, force away. (laughs) You know, force away. That's that's complete uh, nonsense. Um, you know, it's like the uh, and when we see that, like that, uh, is it Holman Hunt? Or, yeah, the the light of Christ, where Jesus is holding the lantern and he's got his uh, arm raised to knock on the door, and there's no doorknob on the outside. It has to be open from the inside, and there's weeds growing around it. Basically, being Jesus is knocking, and you got to open the door. Well, there's a problem with that that I didn't realize until a couple years later uh, after I'd seen that painting for the first time. I never liked it and didn't know why until this happened. I was in the parking lot of a grocery store in Charlottesville, Virginia, Farmer Jack's, and, um, and it was a really hot day, and a lady had locked her child in her car. And the mother was beside herself. The girl was in hysterics. And bright red, stra- I mean, she was, she was about to go down. And, um, and people were yelling outside of the car. Just it was an older model car, so all you had to do was pull up. On, just pull up on the, on the door lock. Just pull up on the door. And this little girl just couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. And so she was just a total mess until finally this construction worker walked up and told the little girl to get down in the back seat. He took a crowbar and smashed the window in and went in and grabbed her. That's the painting I want. And I do think that that's the biblical painting. Like, God's not saying... Just unlock the door. Because the problem is, is that we're inside and we're incapable of opening the door. So, God's, so I want to make a painting with Jesus with a battering ram you know, in front of the door, ready to come in because inside we're bound and we can't open up uh, the door. Now at the same time, uh, the offer of salvation is held out to us uh, to say, yes, I'm, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to say yes to the rescue and I'm going to say yes Uh, to following uh, after you. Uh, And so that's a biblical idea too. But what I would say is that on Judgment Day, 
nobody's going to get away with anything. And nobody's going to stand up there and say, no, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair. Uh, everyone's going to say, that's pretty fair. In fact, the people who refuse and reject Jesus, why would they even want to be in heaven? Heaven would be hell for them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to do that. And so and even here in their own lives, uh, directing their own way. So, but what I would say is that you, we would fall into a fallacy that some people fall into to say, well, if God's going to sort everything else out, then we shouldn't evangelize or we shouldn't share our faith because we don't know the means by which God will affect that. And so on the one hand, I don't, I don't think anybody's too far gone. That's why the Bible says things like God's arm is never too short to save. But at the same time, I don't think that anybody's just going to kind of naturally in their own way come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And I, I trust that his judgments are good and, and just. And so the thing about it is, is putting it back on us. If, if we really believe that, then why wouldn't we go out and tell people? I mean, that's actually one of the crazy things about Christianity. Uh, was it Penn? Penn of Penn and Teller, the comedy group in Las Vegas, has, uh, he's a very, very antagonistic to any faith and uh, has done a couple documentaries lauding atheism. And, uh, but he's been quoted as saying, he said, look, if there was a truck barreling down at me, I would want someone to push me out of the way. I would want someone to tell me there's impending doom coming your way, get out of the way. And short of that, that they would push me out of the way. In the same way, if Christians really believe that in order to spend eternity with God, we need Jesus Christ, otherwise suffer eternal separation from him, why wouldn't you tell me about that? In the same way that you would certainly, I hope, push me out of the way of the moving truck. And how much more consequential is the latter than the former? So, yeah, I mean, it's, this, is, this is a big idea. And we're going to continue to talk about it throughout the semester. All right, y'all. I got to go. Sorry, Kelly. You can talk to me Wednesday. All right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.